Episode 21 of Sass Mouth Dame's podcast, I'm looking at Gloria Swanson and Sadie Thompson from 1928. Directed by, co-starring, and co-written with Raoul Walsh, the picture has one of the juiciest backstories in Hollywood history. You can watch it on YouTube. In the film's climax, Gloria, as the Sass Mouth Dame from the title, calls Mr. Davidson, the reformer that Lionel Barrymore plays, a son of a bitch. Then suddenly, she transforms into a frightened convert who wants to get right with the Lord. All at once, her limbs cease to be languid and haughty. Instead, her arms flutter about with the distress of a wounded bird. As the storm rages outside the window of a straw hut in Pago Pago, Sadie looks haunted by the fate as she cowers in a corner of the room. She starts to call out in fear to Mr. Davidson to tell him she's afraid. As if he can smell her vulnerability, the reformer enters Sadie's room and seizes the opportunity to assume control over the scarlet woman. In terror over the fate of her soul and the knowledge that she will be deported and sent back to a jail in San Francisco, the bracelets Sadie wears look as heavy as prison irons. The fringe trim on her frock seems tangled up with her necklaces, which tighten like a noose around her neck. She flails for relief, a way out. The storm outside intensifies once she realizes she's cut off and trapped, and the trader's hut looks like a jail cell. Born again, she bows her head, simplifies her hair and makeup, and dons a plain robe and a tassel like a novitiate. Sadie hands the trader's wife her cigar box full of face paint and the notches on her belt. Naturally, the missionary will teach her to pray. He's the one who can save Sadie from judgment. When he says, repent and you'll be saved, he really means, submit to me and I'll spare my wrath. Sadie didn't actually have a belt with notches on it, but rather a sash with the badges and medals of men she has known that proves she has earned her stripes with men. As a saved woman, Gloria's skin looks like it's lit with Klieg lights from underneath. Her skin shines brighter than a marquee. Her already luminous eyes are blinding white with their blue centers. Gloria Swanson's hair looks like it's been anointed with cherub tears, smoother than silk and glossier than satin. Gloria Swanson looks beatified. Gloria sells Sadie's conversion with the force of a supernova. When handsome O'Hara, played by Raoul Walsh, turns up and promises that he's arranged her passage to Australia, where they will meet again and marry, Sadie gently refuses. She's changed, she tells him. She must atone and pay for what she's done in San Francisco. Mr. Davidson brought her to the light, and she wants to do the right thing. O'Hara is gutted, and he can't believe she's been convinced to meet her doom. He tells Sadie that she seems like she's been drugged. Gloria does seem mesmerized as she stares off into the middle distance, resigned to a grim custodial sentence. Davidson returns from pulling out fairy wings, or rather some other killjoy excursion, to stop islanders from dancing, and interrupts O'Hara's rescue plan. If you were to wring out the essence of smug satisfaction Davidson displays and bottle it for market, the heady elixir of undiluted ego would fetch enough dough to cancel out the world debt. 
He is triumphant that Sadie obeyed his orders and rejected O'Hara. His dominance confirmed, it opens the gateway to other pleasure centers in his brain and nether regions. One minute he's praising her resolve, and the next he gushes over her beauty and radiance. In Sadie's head, the other shoe has dropped. Gloria made Sadie Thompson a professional at giving men what they wanted. She's a good-time gal who understood that life was easier if you smoothed the feathers of ruffled peacocks like Mr. Davidson. A savvy woman had to play both the part of Mary Magdalene and the Madonna if she were to get by. It's easy to understand why Gloria was compelled to adapt Somerset Maugham's story to the screen. In many ways, it mirrored her own experiences with men in show business. Although she was considered the queen of Hollywood, the most original artist of her generation of actors, she had more in common with a South Seas sex worker than audiences of her era might have recognized. Gloria learned at a tender age how some men use and abuse women as their natural birthright. Raped on her wedding night, left torn apart and bloody by her groom Wally Beery, when she was but 16 years old, Gloria Swanson was no stranger to ruthless, domineering men. She stayed with Beery even after he gave her pills to cause a miscarriage and spent her studio paid packets. Finally, when she realized Beery bought the same hat for her and one of the many women he dated while they were married, so from the car view it would look like he were out with his wife, she had had enough and walked out of the marriage. Exploited by film industry moguls, producers, and directors, she learned early on that managing male demands was a never-ending task. There was the time Cecil B. DeMille risked her personal safety by posing a lion with his paws on her back while she lay sprawled on the ground for male and female in 1919. He took only a minimal precaution. He asked Gloria if she were on her period, in which case the animal would have torn her apart. Luckily, she wasn't. Like many women today, Gloria felt that if she met their challenges, she would eventually earn their respect. Somehow, even after she climbed to the top of a cutthroat industry, had children, and became ultra-sophisticated enough to spend $500 a month on perfume, she was still blindsided by the obstacles she encountered from men who were unyielding in their sexist assumptions and dismissal that she was only a silly woman. Like Sadie Thompson, Gloria Swanson grappled with men who tried to starve her of her daily bread or paid her essentially pennies on the millions they made from her productions. Sadie is all of us, every woman who has ever been plagued by a man who decided that she had to succumb to his authority, that he had the right to boss her into submission. Also like Sadie, Gloria learned how to outsmart that type of man. Yelling and screaming only go so far. If you can't find a way to duck men in power, you burn out or realize that you can't fulfill your dreams. Gloria Swanson used a charm offensive to get a green light for Sadie Thompson. She invited the notorious Poe-faced Will Hayes to luncheon in her home. She asked for his advice, deferred to his expertise. She spoke of wanting to adapt one of Somerset Mom's stories to the screen. She didn't mention it by the name he would know, the stage version entitled Rain. Instead, she described the story's merits about tolerance and acceptance. She finagled his approval, knowing that he was not a well-read man, and would not figure out that she was really referring to the red-hot story about a sex worker who bests a man of the cloth that had been on the banned list. 
she paid deference to Hayes's position and rigid moral code by asking for permission to change the man to a reformer rather than a man of God, so as not to offend churchgoers. She entreated him to allow her to defer to his authority and use his name when she requested the changes to the author. In her memoir, Swanson on Swanson, Gloria captures the scene beautifully. She was eager to consult his opinion, she said, since she had only just become a producer and she had not yet signed the pledge to uphold the production code. Sometimes, not being taken seriously by men has its advantages. She inserts this bit of dialogue for their tete-a-tete. And what is the name of the story? It's called Miss Thompson. Have you read it? No, I don't believe I have. You should. It's a classic. I suppose you're not much concerned with magazine stories, though, are you? Not really, but I recognize Mom's name. I held my breath. And you're right, Mr. Hayes continued. Some of his works are classics. So I may use your name, Mr. Hayes, when I tell him I must make Reverend Davidson just plain Mr. Davidson? Of course you may, and good luck. Gloria, in her supreme facility with the male ego, made Hayes feel important and authoritative while she got exactly what she wanted. She complimented him by saying the word was law, above even an internationally celebrated man of literature. The woman's artistry is unparalleled with sidestepping power-hungry men. Gloria then used a secret code to negotiate the rights to both the story and the play so that no other studio official could interrupt or override her production. Gloria set to work in her garden writing the script with Raoul Walsh. She felt she was in the catbird seat. They ran an advertisement stating that her second production for United Artists would be based on Mom's Miss Thompson. Two days later, the leading men in the industry discovered that she was in fact trying to adapt what they knew as rain. Wagons circled to prevent her on the basis of moral outrage. Even worse, their strongly worded missive against the project was addressed to Joseph Skank, head of United Artists Studio, where Gloria had joined by invitation. She made her first picture for United Artists in 1927 after she left Famous Players Lasky Studio. But Gloria Swanson was the producer, not Joe Skank. It was her idea, her project, not Joe's. The men who signed the letter couldn't be bothered to pay her the deference of treating her as an equal in business. They were furious that she was able to coax permission from Will Hayes for a picture they would have sold their mothers to have been able to make. The letter registered the strongest protest against the production. The men said that the project jeopardized the entire American film industry, which stood to suffer financially and incur the wrath of an outraged public by insulting common values. Going forward with Sadie Thompson would be unforgivable, they threatened. Fifteen men signed their names. Chief among them were her old boss, Jesse Lasky, and Adolf Zukor from Paramount, as well as William Fox and Winnie Sheehan from Fox Studios, Albert Warner from Warner Brothers, Marcus Lowe from MGM, Robert Cochran from Universal Pictures, Sam Spring and Richard Rowland from First National Pictures, and Joseph Kennedy. Of the last name, instead of asking who the hell is Joe Kennedy, Gloria should have fine-tuned her psychic gifts and deciphered the bad news that he augured for her future. But I digress. Gloria was wise enough to smell the rank stench of hypocrisy from the subtext, since she knew that the bosses and distributors had made comparable films that were deemed morally offensive. She was having none of it. 
In her memoir, she wrote, the real reason they were out to get me was that I had reached up and picked the biggest plum of all, but they were too dishonest to say so. They were jealous that she had figured out how to put one over on the censors, and they had not. She covered her bases and felt vindicated enough to disregard the browbeating. In response, she issued telegrams to every man on the list informing them that she had gained permission and was about to begin production despite their objections. With care and taste, the story could be told. Marcus Lowe from MGM made peace in a letter, voicing regret that he had signed the letter originally and then wished her good luck. Not everyone in Hollywood objected to the production. Some were savvy enough to predict the hit it could be at the box office. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was the first to turn up on Gloria's doorstep and ask for the role of Handsome O'Hara. Gloria was amused since he was a teenager at the time. Gloria and Raoul had once met before at a party thrown by Paula Negri and Rudy Valentino. He fancied her instantly, but backed off because she was married to a man he called a parlor cat. When they met next to discuss the film they were going to make together, Gloria told them that he had to find her something, that she had read 20 scripts already, and they all made her shudder. Walsh mentioned the mom story and told her the plot. In his memoir, Each Man in His Time, he describes their conversation. Gloria said, you mean they kicked the Sadie what's-her-name out of San Francisco for whoring? Her eyebrows shot up after I ran through the plot. Why, that's ridiculous. Whoring is a national pastime. If you don't believe me, take a stroll along the strip. Walsh suggested that maybe the role wasn't befitting a woman who had married a French aristocrat with a title. Gloria replied, there you go, pulling rank on me, you Irish Puritan. How do you know that I wouldn't make the best chippy who ever swung a hip? Walsh had to balance Gloria's demands for smoking hot scenes between Sadie and O'Hara with the stern censors who had threatened to shut it down. Raoul Walsh wrote, The high-button shoe and open-work stockings and parasol helped Gloria's depiction of a flaunting floozy, but it was her feeling for the part that gave her acting a hint of feral grace. Her complete lack of self-consciousness was another asset that turned her into a very believable prostitute. When she came mincing into the trader's living room, hugging the arm of Quartermaster Bates and chatting, she left her real identity on the beach. You would have to be in a coma to miss the sexual chemistry between Gloria and her leading man. Something about his underbite jawline says true blue. His handsome O'Hara is a man you can believe in, you can rely upon him. Their affair during production was steamy. But in one of the best moments they share on screen, it captures an intimacy that seems so pure and innocent. When Sadie attempts to petition the governor for a reprieve on the deportation order, O'Hara gives her a rain poncho and then carries her piggyback to the governor's hacienda. She looks so tiny and fragile on his back in the rain, but she trusts him. It's one of the most gallant gestures on film. Walsh learned to restrain his praise for actors. He believed that it created an inflated ego and damaged an actor's performance. When she came to me between takes and asked if she was doing it properly, I nodded, you play a good bitch, keep it up. Even with Gloria, I followed the old director's maxim, never tell an actor he is great. Always let him think you expect more. A big head has destroyed more careers than booze. New problems erupted when Sam Goldwyn ordered cameraman George Barnes back to the lot for another production. 
Gloria faced additional costs and time lost if they were to reshoot Barnes's work or if they tried to find someone else who could match his impressionistic style. Debts mounted and they fell further behind production as they tried out three different cameramen who couldn't match the work of Barnes. Frantic, Gloria contacted Marcus Lowe, who was gravely ill, but nonetheless gave the order that she could have her choice from MGM's crew. She was grateful and chose Oliver Marsh to finish the film. Walsh wrote of the film's antagonist, Lionel Barrymore came on camera like an inquisitor hunting heretics when he played the reformer Davidson. On set, Barrymore had called the director Bizarre which Walsh had said had been his pet lingo for sex workers. In his memoir, he recalled when he took a night boat from L.A. to San Francisco with Lionel Barrymore after he had finished production of What Price Glory. The boat carried a wealth of sex workers and hard drinkers. Barrymore picked up Walsh's slang for Bizarre and used it as a term of endearment for the director. Then the name stuck and other people started calling him that. By the time Joe Skank rang to tell him Gloria Swanson wanted him to direct her next picture, he also called Raoul Bizark. One day during production, Barrymore showed a bit of doubt about his performance and asked if he were chewing up the scenery. Walsh told him not to worry, they would build more. In her memoir, Gloria was less forgiving of Barrymore's method. Gloria divulged that, The most unusual of the many demands she made on location in Catalina Island was to ask someone to change Lionel Barrymore's clothes. His acting skills she believed unparalleled, but his hygiene was non-existent. When his clothes were drenched on set, he simply let them dry on his body. Day after day, he never changed or bathed. Gloria's strong sense of smell proved to be agony in his mist so she instructed stagehands to take Barrymore's clothes during one of his afternoon naps. Gloria Swanson's version of the Somerset Mom story outpaces the talky version Rain from 1932, starring Joan Crawford. First, the other characters are aware of and discuss the clear sexual attraction that Lionel Barrymore's holy roller has for Gloria Sadie. When his wife says that he hasn't slept well in three nights for having dreams of Sadie, The traitor and the doctor say privately that they bet those dreams weren't unpleasant. One of them mimes a cupping boobs motion to indicate it was overtly sexual. The so-called do-gooder is motivated by desire, something everyone can see except for him and his wife. Gloria isn't harshly styled in garish makeup and and a tatty outfit. What she wears looks like something a woman who gets by on her appearance would take pleasure in wearing. Why is it that the best films about sex workers always have the most covetable wardrobe? I always find myself saying, that looks pretty devastating and classy to me. Think of Vivian Lee in Waterloo Bridge from 1941. When she's out looking to pay the rent from a fresh shipment of soldiers in the train station, she's wearing a duchess satin frock that looks like a prime cocktail party choice. Gloria Swanson's wardrobe for Sadie Thompson, before her supposed religious conversion, exhibits verisimilitude, but also stylish panache. First, I have a deep aversion to monogrammed clothing. It usually reeks of monomania, of parsimony, and narcissism. It says, in effect, that no one else can use your clothing. 
which seems outrageous to me. I'm always looking to pass along clothing when something in my wardrobe no longer fits or brings me joy. And in my belt-tightened post-grad experience, all of my decent clothes for teaching were secondhand. I mean, are you going to be buried with your clothes? Yet for this character, a monogram top seems like the perfect choice for a marginalized woman who must assert her own right to exist, that she's important, that she's worthy of flaunting her initials above her breast. Sadie Thompson writes her name into the world in a stylish font on a silk shell top that looks like it was made for afternoon tea with the ladies or lawn tennis. In a world full of men like Davidson, Sadie's name is lower than dirt. She addresses that grim social hierarchy straight on and claims some stature with her initials. Sadie matters. Her clothes are full of bravada. The breezy kicks pleat slit in front of her skirt highlights her mobility and her energy. The one thing Joan Crawford does that makes her version a standout is when she's supposedly converted, she goes for long stretches without blinking. My eyes water just looking at her. I don't know how she can keep her eyes open for so long. But it really does build the whole impression of her eyes finally open to see the light or what have you. The Hayes office hired lip readers to scrutinize the final edit for profanity. It ordered any mention of rain stricken from the title cards. After a long production, with many setbacks and absolutely no time for her children, Gloria felt certain she had a hit. Before one ticket was sold at the box office, Gloria Swanson was over budget and in debt for a million dollars. When Joe Skank tried to hi-hat her over the budget, she lost her temper. Sure, if Goldwyn wants reshoots, he's praised for his commitment to art. But instead, Gloria gets treated like a woman who can't balance a checkbook after a shopping spree. She didn't want to answer to Skank or beg for more money, so she sought alternative financing. An old friend put her in touch with Joe Kennedy, whom she knew only as one of the bigwigs who signed the letter that said she should cease production. Gloria traveled to New York to show the film to exhibitors and to meet with Kennedy. This shows how rich she was and how she didn't always make the best financial decisions. She had a penthouse apartment in Manhattan, but since all the servants were in California, the luxurious flat was shut up, so she stayed in the Barclay Hotel. She strategized for her meeting with Kennedy. She had the concierge ring when he arrived, so she would not be put in the position of waiting for him in public. She arranged beforehand with the maitre d' where they would sit, and she stipulated that no matter what, the check be placed on her bill. She didn't want to owe him anything, especially if he were just another studio scold. If only she had continued to take care throughout the course of their relationship. As Carrie Beecham reports in her book, Joseph P. Kennedy Presents His Hollywood Years, the Boston speculator effectively scuppered Gloria's film career. After he lured her in with the promise that they would make millions together on prestige pictures, he talked her into signing the profits away from Sadie Thompson, which was the biggest hit of her career. Kennedy was also responsible for the biggest bomb of her career, Queen Kelly. And for each of the three films they made together, Gloria earned a paltry $50,000 for each and was left at the end of their three-year affair $1.5 million in debt. This was the woman who was the first to walk away from a $1 million a year contract with famous players. 
Kennedy, by contrast, left Hollywood to the tune of a $10 million fortune. Gloria, for all her talent and vision, failed to learn the most basic lesson in business. Read the fine print and never let a man hold your pocketbook. I'll leave you with an excerpt from Swanson on Swanson, which captures a real-life conversion. When Gloria became dedicated to nutrition and wellness, once she began having stomach pains one week before production began on Sadie Thompson. Gloria was an advocate of healthy eating and using food to cure the body's ailments long before it was fashionable or profitable. They finally said we could begin shooting in a week. To my horror, however, as we neared the end of this snarl of preliminaries, I began having terrible stomach pains. I tried to ignore them, but they didn't go away. They increased. I was absolutely certain I had ulcers, the disease of producers, and the more I worried, the worse the pain got. Henri and Lois Wilson begged me to see a doctor, but the only doctor I trusted was in Paris, and knowing me, all of our friends were reluctant to suggest one, particularly after what happened to Rudy Valentino at the hands of greedy, careless physicians. I was frantic, however, and in serious pain. In no way could I start shooting in that condition. After winning the battle to obtain Sadie, and after borrowing a fortune to produce it, all I could think of was I would collapse on set the first day with a bleeding ulcer and have to hire Norma Talmadge or Dolores Del Rio to replace me. Finally, I called Jane Gray, a friend who worked for Good Housekeeping magazine, and she recommended a doctor in Pasadena who had been treating her mother. In fact, she swore by him. When I was no better the next day, I gave in and drove to see him. The doctor's name was Henry G. Byler, and his office was so tiny and unassuming that I checked the address again before I went in. There was no receptionist, no nurse, just a simple room with a couple of chairs and a sign on the wall that said, No Smoking. Oh no, I thought, had I driven all the way to Pasadena to get a sermon on the evils of smoking? What nonsense. I had been smoking since I was 15. The only time I ever quit was when I was pregnant. Dr. Byler was a little man, not much bigger than me. He looked more like a bookkeeper than a physician. No white coat, no stethoscope, no smell of medicine or disinfectant about him. I repeated what I had said to him on the phone, that I feared I had ulcers and that Miss Gray had recommended him to me. He seemed not to pay much attention to what I said. He just kept staring at me. Then he sat down at his desk and motioned for me to sit down opposite him. At last he spoke. Take off your earrings, please. As I started to reach for my ears, I thought, this is ridiculous, and I paused. I even considered leaving by the door I had just entered. He gave me an insistent look, however, so I took off my earrings and put them in my purse. Still, he just kept looking at me. Then he reached into a desk drawer and, pulling out a long yellow pad and a pencil, asked, what did you have to eat last night? I was still dubious, very, about the earrings business, but at least his second remark related to my stomach, where the pain was, so I hastened to be cooperative. Oh, I said, a shrimp cocktail. You didn't have any of those little things before you went to the table? Oh, yes, hors d'oeuvre. Well, let's see. I had some toasted almonds, several green olives wrapped in bacon, and a deviled egg. He was writing everything down. When he got to the deviled egg, he motioned for me to stop until he could catch up. Half amused, I looked at the pad as he wrote deviled egg. It wasn't two words. It was a list of ingredients, egg, mayonnaise, mustard, paprika, Worcestershire sauce, chives. 
and a bit of pâté in a cheese puff, I said, in a deliberately speeded up tone in order to convey to him that I was a busy woman and in no mood for games. With no change of pace on his part, he added those things to the list. Did you drink, he asked. Yes, I said, Dubonnet, a sip. All right, he said. Now back to the table. What kind of sauce did you have for your shrimp cocktail? You have to guess, I wanted to say, but I controlled myself and said something red. He stopped and considered for a minute and then added many items to the list. His inquisition continued, course by course, through the whole meal I had eaten the night before with Henri and friends. Soup, fish, chicken, and various accompanying wines, the jelly with the bird, the sauce and the stuffing with the fish, the peas, the fresh asparagus, hollandaise sauce, he interjected, and I nodded, and he recorded it. How about dessert, he asked, when we came to the end of the meal. I have an English cook, I said, and she made a trifle. I see, he said. I wrote down all of the ingredients, eggs, flour, raspberry jam, sherry, whipped cream, slivered almonds, maraschino cherries, coffee? No. Nothing to drink after dinner? Yes, champagne, I said, one glass, and several cigarettes, I added, assuming that that was what he had probably been trying to get me to admit all along. It didn't seem to interest him. By now, he had covered three sheets of foolscap, and he was scanning them like an accountant. I'll tell you what I want you to do, he said. Close your eyes while I read off each item I recorded here on your chart. I want you to imagine a plate, empty at first, and then as I call out these ingredients, I want you to visualize them piling up on the plate. Or better still, imagine spooning them into a garbage pail. He read the whole list slowly to me. Waves of nausea build up inside me, so that I thought I was going to throw up. When he finished, he asked me calmly and matter-of-factly, tell me what animal, including a pig, would eat that combination of things in less than two hours. I was struck dumb. No one had ever spoken to me like that before. He smiled quizzically at me for a full beat before he drove the nail home. Why do you treat your stomach like a garbage pail? We then exchanged a smile of complete trust. I knew this was the doctor for me, and he knew I was salvageable. In medical school, he had been ill himself, he told me, of asthma and kidney problems. His professors recommended all the conventional treatments, but he grew steadily worse. At last, he came across an out-of-print book on fasting. Having tried everything else without success, he felt he had nothing to lose except useless weight. As he grew noticeably thinner, his friends and professors expressed concern. They told him he was killing himself, but he didn't feel awful, and once he had lost 60 pounds, he also lost his asthma and his kidney problems. Then he began to read some of the books on natural medicine written by traditional American doctors who had practiced and studied in the country early in the century, before doctors began to prescribe only standard drugs and medicine produced by the huge international pharmaceutical cartels. At that point, he became a maverick and reverted to the good sense of a healthier age. His words made perfect sense to me. In fact, I felt better just listening to him. At the end of an hour and a half, he told me I could put my earrings back on. Then he prescribed a series of enemas and a modified fast of vegetable broth made of zucchini, celery, and string beans, and told me to come back in a week. May I ask why you had me take off my earrings, I questioned him before I left. Of course, he said, I wanted to see your lobes. Long lobes indicate healthy adrenals, and you certainly have them.
I had a few rough days as my body gradually eliminated the poisons built up in it, and Henri protested loudly that surely I was making myself ill, not well. But by the time I went back to Dr. Byler, I felt like a different woman. And by the time we went to the studio to start shooting Sadie, my skin was glowing, my eyes were clear and sparkling, and my nerves were calm. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about the Gimme Girls, Joan Blondell and Glenda Farrell in Where in the Money from 1935. Thanks very much.